I don't want a pickle Just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello and welcome everybody. This is episode number 93 of the NoCo Moto podcast. I'm your host Moto G Pete and with me is your other host Swiggy. <sighs> yo. Yo. <laughs> and you're keeping that in, aren't you? I probably am. We are coming to you from NoCo Moto headquarters, which is also sweet a top floor of Moto 1 podcast network studios. We just had a little recording session here for congratulations to the up for the upcoming 200th episode of Creative Riding. We had the president in here. All of the lackeys, our uh, our interns, I locked them in the closet for a while. I still haven't let them out. I think they can sit there a little while longer so they don't fuck up any of this recording. So. Let's see here. What have we got? We have got on the show for you today. We've got best worst bike as always. We have a little correction and emission action. We've got MotoGP and just racing news in general. And we have a companion piece to last week's episode. We have a list of the most immature rides possible. So anything else we want to put in here? Oh, we should remind everyone that we have been continuing to get suggestions for episode 100, but we still want more of those to roll in. We're starting to get a good amount, so awesome. Let's get even more. The show's only going to be even more awesome. You know, and here's another special thing. I've seen a few more ratings and reviews roll in. Thank you. I'm glad that your conscience caught up to you. And I kind of wanted to give a quick breakdown of how you should give ratings, not just to this podcast, but to any podcast, especially other motorcycle podcasts, because there's so many good ones out there that we should give a, a little shout out to, you know, not just creative writing, but, you know, also our our uh, our little wellspring of listeners, um, Bruce and This Motorcycle Life, the Motorcycles and Misfits podcast, Cleveland Moto uh, I'm starting to see some really cool stuff come out of other shows like Slacker and um, what's the one? Ollie, Ollie Seagraves, um, the Moto Experience. Oh my goodness. Uh, there's a bunch of them and there's a whole bunch I'm forgetting there too. But if you've heard, th- this is how you should rate podcasts. If you have heard more than one hour of a show and then gone back to it again, that's automatically two stars. That, that's worth a two-star from you right there. If you have heard one entire episode, episodes worth of any show, even if it's split in between two shows. So you heard half of one show, then you went back and heard another whole half of another episode. That's a three-star. If you have ever listened to a podcast all the way through and been excited to listen to another that's four stars. And if you continue to look forward to episodes of a show coming out, that's five stars. And this goes for any podcast ever, because guess what? They're fucking free entertainment that someone spends a lot of time and money on. So go ahead and leave reviews for people. Okay. That's my soapbox. I'm done. You seem like you had something you want to add there, Swigs. Uh, no. No? Okay. I'm just still basking in the glory of the 
I don't even know how to put it. Just the way I saved the day remotely today. I, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not in the moment right now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyways, moving on. Moving on. So what do you say we get to best worst bike in the world this week? Let's do it. Okay. So if this is your first episode and you are therefore one of the very few people that isn't under the gun for a rating and review, because it's just your cost of admission otherwise, then you may not know how this segment works. Here's the deal. We're going to break it down. So you're not wandering lost in the woods through this segment. Each week, we each pick a different motorcycle, and we alternate who has each, one of us to pick the best bike in the world this week, and one's picking the worst. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's always a surprise. We reveal it live. Now, some people feel strongly about the choices that we make, and they send us emails, and they do a pretty good job of staying well, mentally stable. Okay, They're, the emails we receive are of a much higher quality than other people probably receive in terms of listener emails, and we are grateful for that. Now, if you want to have your feelings hurt and fly off the handle, well, you can, and you can send those emails to contact at nokomotopodcast.com. But it's way better if you remain level-headed before you send the email. And you could do that by just remembering the title to the B-side off of Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild single, the B-side entitled There's No Crying in Motorcycles. Okay, so with that, Swigs, you have worst bike in the world this week, right? Yes. Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is... The 2019 Aprilia RSGP. Wow, we haven't had to do this since last year with the M1. It's true. Now, for those of you not in the know, this is the prototype MotoGP bike that Aprilia runs in said motorcycle racing series now in particular there's a lot of things we could go with with this bike we could talk about how it's thoroughly unimpressive in terms of results oh it's probably one of the worst bikes in MotoGP history certainly in the modern era for results right but i think even more importantly is you could also levy those accusations against the ktm I think Aprilia has consistently been worse this year. Yeah. Well, they've been both kind of back of the pack, and they've kind of traded some results, and they've both occasionally gotten some decent results on rare occasions. But this is much worse than the KTM, and it doesn't have to do with performance at all. It has to do with the fact that we've literally heard nothing about this bike or the team the entire season. The most you ever heard of this bike, in fact, you didn't even hear about the bike, just one of just a rider was Ianone putting starting to put up a decent result at Phillip Island. Besides that, everyone has somewhat forgotten that this bike exists. And this bike lives in a sport that is all about branding 
an advertising. And most people would probably not, most people with a passing interest in MotoGP would not be able to tell you that Aprilia is running a team. Well, Aprilia is not running a team. This is not a factory bike. Aprilia does not have a full factory effort bike. So you see how it says Team Grassini on the seat there? The Aprilias only have satellite bikes. There is no factory team. This is not Aprilia factory backed, which is a weird thing about the Aprilia team. I don't know why I know this. It's not a real factory team. It's a private race team. They just happen to be the only team foolish enough to buy an Aprilia. That's kind of distressing. Yeah. It's not like Piaggio is hurting for cash. Right. Yeah. Would it kill Piaggio to throw a couple dollars behind this? Now, my thing with this bike is, has there ever been on the grid a bigger swing between how cool a bike is and how bad its results are. Yeah. Cause uh, this is the fucking coolest looking race bike in the history of race bikes. It's true. The Italian flag, uh, colors all over it with, with all the black in it and the, the Aprilia logos and all of it. It's so they made their street bike so close to this. And it's such a winning combination. I feel so hurt by this bike, not because it does so poorly, but because I want it to do well, because it's a cool bike. It's a cool name. It's a cool brand. We love the rider, Iannone. Everything's there for us to love the shit out of this if they could only just get in the top 10 a little more often. Yeah. But instead, it's completely failed in its mission. It's bare minimum mission of be noticed. Right. Let people be aware of your existence. I mean, in a way, because they have no sponsors, they get to make the bike look whatever way they want. <laughs> well, they do have sponsors. Well, there's Sky Q. I mean, Golf. Nobody else has paid all that much for a lot of sponsorship coverage here, but yeah. Akrapovich, kind of. I mean, only because we know what that little hook like sickle symbol thing, devil horn thing is. You can't see the actual Acropovich letters anywhere. I mean, even their own team name is super small. I had to point it out to you. Yeah, it's, uh, the most notable thing on there is Aprilia. And then the second most notable thing is the, just the Aprilia a on the front fairing. And then the third most noticeable thing is their actual sponsor spy Q, but the Q is a little ambiguous. Well, yeah, because it's over the radiator. (laughs) (laughs) It's over the opening for the radiator. I'm sure at the right angle it looks very good, but it's... uh, We're looking at the bike dead on from the side. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So... (laughs) I don't have a lot more to add. I just felt like this was a bike that... No matter how cool it is and how fast it is and how awesome it, I'm sure it would be to ride one, has utterly failed in its mission. Oh, completely. Well, and as you said, as you said, 
Aprilia isn't even pretending to bring a different bike to testing, or Team Grassini isn't. Yeah, they they don't have any new bikes. They may get one in February. Yeah, the, but... the story is not changing for Aprilia next year, it seems. I feel bad for whoever's riding it, because you're going to be running some lonely 17th place races. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't have much more to add, so... Uh, me neither. There you go. Okay. So the worst bike of the world this week, the Aprilia GP bike. I can still bet in a car. Okay. Okay, let's move on to best bike. I'm cheating, but the best bike in the world this week is... It's actually two bikes. They're kind of the same bike. They're kind of not. But there's this bridge between them that's amazing. So we've got the 1989 Kawasaki ZX-10 Tomcat. And then the 1990 Kawasaki Ninja ZX-11 or ZZR-1100. So why these bikes? Well, we haven't talked about the Speed Wars for a while. And this is just one of the greatest things in motorcycle history. So the Kawasaki ZX-10 Tomcat. This is really before Kawasaki totally figured out their branding with the Ninja name. Now, what's going on with this bike? A lot of wonderful things. This is the natural evolution of the GPC 900 over four or five years, turning into this, the ZX-10. So they'd figured out their, their ZX, you know, and I think this is the first ZX bike. So, but it's not a Ninja yet. It's the Tomcats. Uh, but the numbers are really impressive. And I can't remember the year that the ZX-10 comes in, but I think it's like 87, 88, or it just runs 88, 89. It was kind of short-lived, the Tomcat version. And it's a little rough around the edges. It's fairly 80s. It doesn't it's have... very 80s. It's very 80s. But it, but it, it's it, time's been a little bit kind to it in many ways. Yeah. And it's a great big, gigantic leader sports tourer. And it is very large, but this was the fastest production motorcycle at the time because we were into full swing of speed wars at this time. Now, it depends on how you look at the numbers, but Kawasaki was being challenged at the time with the FZR 1000 RX up, which was another bike like this, a great big one liter, just no good on the track, really just really fast in a straight line sort of thing, you know, bragging rights kind of bike. Yeah. And that's what all these big top speed bikes were. None of them were really that good on a track. They left all that agility to the 750s. This is the reason why the original Fireblade was so good. It was really light, like all the 750 superbikes of the time, but it had power that was much more like these, these big interstate sport tour bikes. So... Kawasaki did this great thing from 1989 to 1990. While they still held the crown 
for world's fastest production bike. Some people were looking at skewed numbers and claimed that the Yamaha was the fastest. It never really actually was, but some people thought, well, maybe it was. And Kawasaki had only really just come about with that bike in a form that was competitive on numbers. Whereas Kawasaki had been working on this for some time. So, so Kawasaki, after just a year, year and a half, two years of production for the CX-10, just without needing to, to retain the crown, pre-escalates to the ZX-1100 and breaks or smashes the, um, the displacement thing. Because the thing about the X-Up was it was 1,001 cc's, which was intentional, <laughs> right? Where, and I think the ZX-10, I want to say, was, yeah, 997. So the ZX-1100, uh, 1,052 cc's. So look at this difference in the numbers here. They 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 change the frame. They they redesign the whole bike. They make it look different, and um, so it goes to do do do. So on the ZX10, we've got eleven one compression. We've got one hundred and thirty five horsepower at the crank, seventy five foot pounds of torque, and it weighs five hundred and forty one pounds dry. The ZX11 goes to 135 horsepower at the rear wheel. Oh. 78 foot-pounds of torque at the rear wheel and comes in like five pounds lighter. Yeah. Well, shit. It's kind of a big deal, right? It just goes, hey, everything that we saw is... Because this is around the time... Because you say... um. Because I said this is Speed Wars. Everyone's going, well, you say it's 135 horsepower, but we put it on a dyno, right? So the guys at Kawasaki went, make a fucking bike that produces those numbers on the dyno right now. And that's what they did. So the ZX-11 is a special bike for me because... Yes, we were already in the swing of the speed wars, but this is the moment it really gets turned up a notch. Everyone knew that for, you know, ever, ever since the CB750 came out, every year it was what's the next fastest production, but you know, what's going on, right? But it wasn't really a thing until the GPZ 900 is really when that war, I, some people might say it could even go back to like the Z1, but I, for me, as it being just sort of a, a known competition amongst the manufacturers in the public's eyes, I see the GPZ 900 is where it starts, but right here it goes up a fucking notch. This is kind of the moment, you know, we all remember from our youth when we would go to some crazy parties and as the parties kind of start to wind down, you know, as people, as the herd thins out and there's fewer and fewer people, that's when, you know, the weed comes out and the absinthe comes out and somebody's got some LSD. And, you know, it's kind of ramping up a little bit in a different way. It's quieting down, but it's ramping up. And then at a certain point, somebody has lost enough inhibition that they just say, you know, I could really go for some meth right now. Yeah. And everybody else kinds of kind of backs away a little bit. This was the moment that a switch was flipped 
and everything was escalated immediately. Yeah. The Hayabusa famously has held the title for world's fastest production bike for the longest amount of time. A lot of that time, not correctly, but whatever. This is second place at six years. For six years straight, fastest production motorcycle. Stock, this bike ran 10.43 seconds quarter mile. Uh, this is a badass motorcycle. Now, yes, it's gigantic at with its wet weight, almost 600 pounds, but that's just kind of how motorcycles were then. And if you ride one, it's kind of oddly satisfying how heavy it is because you're aware it's from 1990 and you don't expect it to turn on a dime. And honestly, if you ride a Busa, they're still really not flickable. <laughs> they're just not. They're, they're not that kind of bike. Now, this is also great because of the styling. Like I said, this is the first time Kawasaki calls these big bikes ninjas or ZZRs, right? And that's a big deal because it was the Tomcat before. And in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, lots of things were named after jet planes and helicopters. There's a lot of stealth, everything. There's a lot of Tomcats. There was a lot of Eagles. There was a lot of all that kind of stuff. So for them to go from that to Ninja. I mean, Ninjas were pretty big in the 90s, let's face it. But this is the first time that with this bike, all of Kawasaki's sport line becomes Ninja. From the Ninja 250 up to the 1100, it's all Ninja, right? And this bike is so similar in look to the ZX-6 and the ZX-7 of the time. So, I picked this also because this is something, and this is a really big magic trick, to take the same identity and share it over your whole sports line. Yeah. Because everyone has been trying to do this the same way ever since, and no one else has really cracked the code like Kawasaki has. Yeah. Yeah. Suzuki tries to do a lot of Jixer across everything, but they can't really they get the Jixer to stick with the naked bikes. And they, yeah, the, they spread it too far. And the Katana thing muddled it up. Exactly. Well, I mean, Ninja has, has gone ridiculous all the way to the H2 has a fucking Ninja badge on it. Right. It, all the way down to the 250. And I bet there are the some 125s. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But it's a it's a magic trick. But this is the first time that Kawasaki really had it across the whole line. And think about this is something that Honda tried to do like eight years ago and failed horribly at. Remember when Honda tried to get the whole VFR line going with a mm -hmm. little baby VFR and the 800 and the 1200 and give, gave them all a similar look and tried to do a hyper touring bike like this? and a middleweight sports bike, and a lighterweight sports bike, and it all blew up in their face. Like, Honda was not able to pull this trick off. Yeah, Honda's kind of got the jelly bean model going now, but, yeah, they haven't really pulled it off. Nobody's really pulled it off in the same way that Kawasaki had, had done it, and they did it early on. So when you think about a flagship motorcycle... 
does it get more flagship than the ZX1100 Ninja giving credibility to the ZX7 Ninja, to the ZX6 Ninja, which was the fastest production 600 in 1990, and then to the Ninja 250 as well? I mean, when you talk about flagship being the fastest production motorcycle and having styling that extends all that way, giving you all that credibility and sharing the name, what could be a better flagship? I don't know if there is. Yeah. And also the just the the array of just killer graphics that these bikes have. Oh, I know. It's so good. There must yeah. be like if 30 you're a or 40 fetishist, this is where you live. Yeah. There must be like 30 or 40 different factory paint schemes over the years. Like it's ridiculous. And it's awesome. Yeah, so many of them are wonderful with the yeah. With the weird reds and purples that mix together. Even the blacked out ones are great. All the the hot the hot colored ninja stickers. I love it all. A lot of two tones. It's pretty bitchin'. Yeah. So, and here's the other thing. Because this held the title for six years, it's not a huge group of people. But for some people, this is their Hayabusa. They were kind of already over the idea of a world's fastest motorcycle by the time the Blackbird or the Busa came out. You know, like everyone kind of, even if you don't know, you know someone who knows a Blackbird guy. He's like, yeah, I've had like six super Blackbirds over the years. The greatest bike that was ever made, right? There is a group of people that the Kawasaki ZX-11 is the top of the mountain still and will never really be dethroned in their eyes. Because when they were 19, this was it, man. From when they were 19 to 25, this was it. And yes, there are things that have come that have beat it out on reliability and performance and price and even styling. But they were just there at the right time for this one. And it was that big of a deal that it will never really be dethroned for some people. So yeah, it's kind of just fucking awesome. The legend itself you know, the original giant ass ninja. I mean, this, this bike eventually turned into what is now the ZX 14. I'd rather have this. I would too. And it's still, you know, it's still 145 fucking horsepower at the crank. It still tops out at 165. You know, it's still almost 80 foot pounds of torque. It it's even by modern standards, still a fast fucking bike. Well, there you go. There you go. All right. There we go. Kawasaki ZX 1100. Best bike in the world this week. Let's take a little break. All right. So coming back in now, we are going to sort of pick up where we left off last week with our This Week in List. We are going to list as a counterpoint the most immature bikes of all time. Well, maybe not the most immature, but a list that we think really highlights all the different ways motorcycles can be immature. So was there one that particularly spoke to you that you want to start with, Swigs? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to start with just 
all supermotos. Okay, what's what's the reasoning on this one? Well, the supermoto is inherently an impractical vehicle. True. It's a single cylinder with a weak top end, just boatloads of torque. Well, boatloads of torque for the displacement for the low rev range. Right. But also not really enough weight to necessitate it. It's designed to go off-road, but really you've reconfigured it for climbing stairs. And wheelies, yeah. And wheelies. You can't really carry much on it. It'll get you from A to B. It's also not really all that practical for the highway in terms of the gearing and the fuel capacity. It doesn't really make... It doesn't really do anything to solve a lot of daily motorcycle problems. Yeah, I guess I haven't thought about the fact that a supermoto is tall enough that it makes wearing a backpack affect your handling substantially because you become that top-heavy on such a light motorcycle. Yeah. And you have, optimistically, an 80-mile range. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not a particularly cheap category of bike either. Once yeah, you're thirsty, that's for sure. The the service intervals are really close together. Well, that not well, not only that, but unless you're buying, you know, a DRZ 400 SM, then really you're buying a dirt bike, and then you're buying a new front and rear sprocket, a new chain a new set of wheels, even if you're buying used, it's not really a cheap purchase either. Well, this category might get changed a bit by the new SSR. Or not new, but the SSR, their 450 dirt bike offering. Mm. It's coming in around like 46 horsepower, I think. It's a little heavier, but it shouldn't matter that much. And, and it's only like five grand new. It's kind of compelling. Yeah. If you're going to do it, that might be the way to go. Yeah, but no no motorcycle community has a bigger boner for weight reduction than the supermoto crowd. That's so weird to me because you're pay, you're paying so much money for the most marginal of gains. Yes. That's how the supermoto crowd runs. Like any of them could just go get an MT-07 and just win. Yep. But they won't. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess a at reason. that moment that fashion overtakes all other common sense is definitely a hallmark of the immature ride. Precisely. There we go. Okay. So what stands out to me on this here? Oh, here we go. Because I'll never, ever get tired of of uh, shitting on the Nikon. The Nikon. This is, to me, the immature ride. Because it just says, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I thought I saw this in the magazine, and I thought it looked cool. Here I am. And I'll throw in Can-Am Spider with this as well. This dude wasn't this this dude didn't own a motorcycle last week. Or or yeah, or, you know, he shows up to the office and he's like, check it out. He is gathering people 
to come out into the parking lot to look at his thing that he bought. It could have been, what's the fucking, the, the, the other stinger, uh, shocker, the, the, the really bad one, um, the slingshot. It could have been a slingshot, but no, <laughs> he had to go for a Nikon. He doesn't know what he's doing. He he just thought, wow, people will be really impressed if I buy this. Hmm. I don't know if I'd go with it, go at it from that angle. Um, I don't know if that's an amateur ride so much as an I've given up ride. Or... I don't, I don't see anyone that's ridden for any appreciable amount of time riding a Nikon and going, oh... This is the feeling I was looking for. Because it's so underwhelming and boring and whatever when you get on it. The only thing you could possibly be impressed by is the engine. And there are much better motorcycles that have that engine in it. Yeah. I don't know. I I see it more of an I've given up option, but... You think more people are buying it because they've given up on what? Or from an angle of like, I kind of want to keep riding fast, but I feel like I don't have the feeling anymore. I don't have the confidence. I just want to be able to throw it round corners and not have to worry about it. So it's like, you know, I've given up in terms of it's a confidence replacement. It's confidence replacement therapy. See, I think that person goes for a trike. I think that person dies on a trike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. It's not it's it's not a good move anyway. Okay, let's move to another one. Uh I like so we should just say uh, especially after a best bike in the world cuz there are plenty of bikes on this list that I think are really cool. So, any Speed Wars bike was the most immature ride possible, and to some extent still is. So I am throwing in there, you know, anything from early CBR 1000s, you know, all that stuff, all the way through ZX14s, Hayabusa's, all of those leader plus big sport tour bikes. Well, you can throw the Widowmakers in there too. Uh, Yeah, but really... Really, the the leader plus big, big you know cross country sport touring bikes were they were bought because of the horsepower and top speed numbers associated with them. Yeah, that a lot of those dudes could have just bought Gold Wings instead for what they were doing with the bikes, but they needed it to have a certain edge to it. The and. And those bikes, you know, now I can't dog on anyone that bought any of them because so many of them are really so comfortable to ride. If you can bring yourself to not just pull the throttle and do 140 down the interstate for no reason at all, there a lot of them are really great bikes. And there's an obsession with getting bikes down to a really low weight these days, but there's a lot of situations where having a 500 pound bike feels really good. Yeah. Ask a lot of adventure riders that love how stable that bike will feel in, you know, kind of gentle, normal corners. Yeah. 
on or track in corners. Yeah, on track corners, it feels terrible. But there's something about a nice, big, heavy bike on a great, big, gentle curve that, you know, that captain of your own ship feeling. Yeah. Even if it's not a gigantic Harley, even if it's a 1988 ZX10, there's something to that. Um, but all those bikes were bought because they could just say to some girl, it's the fastest bike in the world. And she never cared, still doesn't. But that's why that bike was purchased. Make yeah. no mistake. <laughs> in a way, that guy is a hero, but he's immature. You know? There's a large crossover. Yeah. So that that leads us directly into the H2. And I believe the H2 SX is like top of the mountain. Because I feel like H2R guy is a little bit more honest with himself. Because he's buying something that's not even street legal. It's like, yeah, I just have that kind of disposable income. But H2SX is... there's an ex- That SX is just... The SX stands for excuse. Yes. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it. It's because the only guys that can afford to buy H2s are 59 to 67 years old. And it turns out they don't really have, you know, they've got back problems and they can't really deal with a regular H2. They're the target demographic for a leave. Exactly. So Kawasaki had to kind of make a gentler posture H2 to actually get these guys to buy them. So, you know, I said before the show, it's not this bike isn't a midlife crisis. This bike is a late life crisis. Yeah. Um, it, it's like after a lifetime of poor purchases, this machine is dumb enough to still make your wife angry. When when she <laughs> thought she had seen it all, here comes the H2SX, the Bane of over 60 women everywhere. <laughs> just, just really, really, Ted, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we got a couple more fun ones on here. Uh, you roll with this one because this, this is good. Uh, I want you to talk about. The MGX-21 Flying Fortress, if you can. Okay. I know a lot of people who would ride this bike. Oh, I'm one of them. But I mean the people who would, like, drop money on this brand new MSRP. Have you seen what they're going for with no miles, like, three or four years old? Oh, I know what they're going for now, but I mean like original sticker price. Oh, the original $21,000? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the person who is going for that bike has a lot of fake leather in their wardrobe. <laughs> 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 and on a daily basis, this is the person who will walk out, forget that it's Halloween, and somebody will think they're dressing up as Ozzy Osbourne or a vampire. This is a person who has not left. This is this is somebody who has carried their goth phase into their mid-30s. Perhaps. I see it a slightly different way. 
this motorcycle has all the hey look at me of the victory vision but without any of the creature comforts or amenities or premium features that a bike like this should have yeah this is this is like owning a dentist chair in your having a dentist chair in your study so you know i used to have a dentist chair right there you go <laughs> um qed <laughs> yeah if i had like the eight or nine grand that these are going for now with no miles on them i could really be tempted because it's such a ridiculous bike but it is a pleasant bike to ride it's just a moto guzzi california with the most ridiculous package slapped on top of it ever maybe i could revisit it five or six years from now when I can buy one for four grand and sell it for three and a half and just own it for a year. We might only be like 18 months off of that day. (laughs) I saw one in Fort Collins three months ago, like 30 miles on it for eight or nine grand. Hmm. I mean, maybe it was a scam, but it's kind of easy to believe. It's not an easy bike to sell. Uh, yeah, but but the person who buys it buys it because it just says, hey, look at me. It's almost to a point where, you know what it is? It's where Daytona Bike Week meets Comic-Con. <laughs> well, I think there's an, there's an additional element of it's appealing on the basis of how distressing it is for other people to look at. Or for a certain market to look at. Wait, I know what this bike is. And this is really going to tie this into last week. So rather than the old boring guy who thought he was going to go and get himself a CB500X and then treat himself to the NC700, this is your 28-year-old guy, works in tech, went to go buy an NM4 and then thought he'd treat himself. (laughs) (laughs) He gets the MGX 21 flying fortress. I think I nailed it. Yeah, I can't disagree. Okay. (laughs) And then the last one, it's always going to be kind of the most irresponsible, dumb motorcycle ever. I'm going to go with a V max. They're they're quietly still just stupid. Oh, that's what we're closing out on? You've got got something even dumber? The Hayabusa. The problem with the Hayabusa is it is stupid power, but it's been eclipsed so much. And the people that, like, the Hayabusa isn't the icon to anyone younger than us that it is to us you know it's day in the sun is really over this is why i say the best thing that can happen to the hayabusa is to be killed and not even reinvented just laid out so it can just become one with the force be the hayabusa in legend and then after enough time has gone by that some people have forgotten about it then you can bring it back or reimagine something else in its place 
And that's much more powerful than the Hayabusa can possibly be. Because anyone that does really remember it now knows that it's kind of cheating in its status as fast as bike. And it hasn't really been updated in a meaningful way for a long time. And even if it is updated, well, then it loses its special fastest production bike title, right? It, it doesn't really hold that much magic. So I don't think people are still buying them. There was a time that, yes, this was the most irresponsible, immature thing you could purchase. But I think it's lived more years past its prime than it ever had in its prime. So it's hard for me to put it on this list. Okay. So we're going with the VMAX then. Have you seen the numbers on VMAXs lately? Uh, On the newer ones, no. It's still stupid. Also, and, why doesn't Yamaha do VMAX test rides at AIM or Coda? So, and what makes the VMAX really dumb, too, is not only is it still stupid power and all of that, it's kind of a little too much money as well. It's not even really a great value. The Escalate, well... Look, this is a motorcycle... This is a new motorcycle, a new high-performance motorcycle that is not a bagger, that is not race competitive, does not fit in a class. Guess, what, what do you think of 2020 VMAX price, prices? Oh, well, I'm looking at the spec page, so oh. I know that it's 18 grand. Right. For what? This For a little, for a cruiser, right? With no features whatsoever. It has, it gets 27 miles per gallon. It weighs 683 pounds, and it's not even a really large bike. Everything about this makes zero sense, which is why it's great, because it's so stupid. But it doesn't even look all that impressive in profile, though. It's not as absurd as the classic one is. I don't know if this is immature so much as just being completely out of the loop on cool. Uh, I, I think it's cool just because a VMAX will always be cool. I think an older VMAX is cooler for certain. Uh, and, and yeah, first gen is the coolest VMAX there could be. Second gen is the second. And this third generation is noticeably less cool. But this isn't so much a, a competition of cool this is immature. Someone buys a VMAX because they're like, fuck everything. I'm having a VMAX. I need a cruiser that does stupid things like this. I need a cruiser with 600 super sport kind of acceleration and top speed. And that means it needs a 1300 V4 with way too much torque and ridiculously low gas mileage and being crazy heavy. So it's a lot bigger than support. that now. Oh. It's a 1700. Is it that big? I thought they'd gotten like 14. Oh, wow. Okay. It's um, a 102 cubic inch. Yeah. It's, it's uh, so stupid. Yeah. It's 1680. And what are they like? 170 horsepower, 160 something. Uh, Yamaha doesn't. 
I, I, I can't find it. Yamaha doesn't publish I want to say I remember this being like 160-something horsepower and like 100 foot-pounds of torque. It's dumb. But that's what's great about it. But that's what's immature about it. It, it shouldn't be what it is because it doesn't make any sense except that you want something cruiserish that does R6 type things. Yeah. So you might have lower priorities in terms of practicality than Supermoto guy. Well, you certainly have more disposable income. This is true. <laughs> um. Yeah, in a way, original VMAX is sort of like a a little bit of becoming a collector's item and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's a lot of power, but it's not crazy power. It's 1990s 600 Super Sport type of power. Yeah, I really didn't want to talk about this bike again. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, the new VMAX? No, I don't like it at all. I like it. It's just it doesn't have the same magic for me as the older ones. And I don't know. It's it's such a ridiculously powerful bike and it's got a V4, which I should love. But then it's also looks like emaciated, but is also heavy as shit. But it's meant to be this crazy, awesome kind of cruiserish bike, but looks super standard at the same time. Uh, this bike is this is meant to be a crazy bike and it just it looks so over it's overly normalized from what it was meant to be yeah they've lost their way i'm sad now yeah but there you go it doesn't yeah it doesn't get less mature than dude who buys a new v-max because it's not like it's on the tip of everyone's tongue this is this is a midlife crisis thing. Someone turns forty five and buys one buys one of these because they they're from a time that they were the hot shit. Okay, all right. I think I think that sums it up for. I think we've hit every category of immature bike, and you'll notice we didn't mention another bike too elite to be ranked. Sorry. Most stolen, most crashed motorcycle of all time, Jixer 600. You're in a special class all your own. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay, let's put in a break. Swiggy rid the email, he goes psycho. Earthworm Jim fights a dude named Sacro. Nice. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Now, drunk Swiggy, but slightly less drunk than normal <laughs> Swiggy. Okay. Maybe drunk Swiggy <laughs> is going to read the emails. What are we starting with? Uh, I've already lost my place. One sec. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Uh, we're going to start with another email from uh, Richard. That we haven't already read. Have we reread Richard's emails? We did. Was it Richard's? Richard Harris? Well, well, I know we've read emails of his before, but I don't know we've read one twice before. I thought that was, what's his name from Australia? Richard. Yes. I thought this was Richard from UK. 
It doesn't matter. Some point. <laughs> Nobody's keeping continuity with emails. We're just reading them. Especially not us. So let's no. read. All right. So Richard says, hi, guys. I'm really enjoying the podcast. I've been playing the back catalog to fill in, waiting for my next fix. Today, I listened to episode 10, and in particular, the induction of Evil Knievel into your Hall of Fame. As a 50... Okay, so this is not the same Richard. Different Richard. I stand corrected. I'm vindicated. As a 55-year-old, I lived through this man's heyday, and he truly was a phenomenon. I also remember the British version, a man called Eddie Kidd, but evil was the king. He is so revered here that I ride with a group of charity riders who dress up as evil and undertake marathon rides to raise money for charity. Thus far, we have raised almost £100,000 for various good causes, but mainly Macmillan Cancer Care, and this year we broke the world record for the most Knievels in one place. What this has taught me is that when anyone under 30 sees 50 evils on a variety of bikes, they wonder why there are so many Elvis impersonators in town. I wonder who did the red, white, and blue jumpsuit first. I bet it was evil. Uh, Elvis did a lot of different jumpsuits, but I don't think the Elvis comeback was until like 76, if I'm remembering correctly. And then Vegas Elvis starts around that time. Like jumpsuit fat Elvis is a very late seventies thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're probably around the same time, to be honest. I want to say Evil was doing jumps in the late 60s, early 70s, and Snake River Canyon would have been towards Elvis just getting into the jumpsuits, I want to say. But I could be wrong there. It doesn't matter. In any case. At one point, I had this timeline straight, but I don't anymore. It's sad. But yes, let's keep going on. Next year, we are doing a 48-hour nonstop marathon relay of the Isle of Man TT course, all dressed as evil, complete with capes. When not doing our allotted laps, we will be riding around the island, visiting various motorcycle-related sites, and raising money for Macmillan and a local Manx charity, raising money for a scanner at the island's hospital. I have attached a picture of us from this year's event, which was a circuit of Wales using coastal roads and farm tracks to keep as close to the sea as possible. It was just over 1,000 miles, and we did it over five days. Our ambition is to run an event where we ride Route 66, but obviously this would be a big leap for us, as each rider pays their own expenses, and everything we raise goes to the chosen charity. I hope near the time you could perhaps give us a plug on the show for the Isle of Man event, as I'm sure your listeners would love to support other bikers being evil for a good cause. Keep up the good work, lads. Rick. Yes, we will absolutely put out word for this whenever you want. Let us know when it is, and we'll uh, we'll do Hell anything yeah. we can for you, because this does look fucking awesome. I would be... I would love to take part in this myself if I could get myself there somehow. It's wonderful. I don't know about the cape. I'd probably, I'd probably pass on the cape. Oh, I'm in it with the cape as well. It's a short cape that he used to wear. I guess so, yeah. Okay. All right, so let's move to our next email here. Oh, look, it's uh, it's the CBR 250. Is it the 250X? 
With the googly eyes? Yes, yeah, the Google. It's the googly eyes Honda. Ah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, we'll post this picture in the show notes. All right, what do we got now? Uh, well, I just dragged this over, so I need to pull this back. Okay. Uh, next we have uh an email from Pete from Australia. And he says, hi, guys. Thought you might be interested to know I listened to your podcast while maintaining roads. Uh, he's a greater operator in a remote area in Western Australia. I enjoy the podcast and get a few laughs. A mature age rider with 30 plus years experience and currently ride a 2010 Kawasaki Vulcan Classic. Oh, and Bergman. Oh, yeah. I might have to send you some stuff. So, yeah, anyone who's uh, driving roads in Western Australia, just be careful because they may have been installed under the influence of our podcast. Beware. Yes. Thank you for the email. But, yeah, I like that the show's doing something for them out there. That laying roads in Western Australia sounds... I mean, I know Australia already was like a prison colony, but it it sounds like the type of thing that you're sent to do is a harsh punishment. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) I've never, I mean, we've been to Australia, but we've never been to Western Australia because it's sort of understood that you need a very, very good reason to go. I mean, there's Perth over there, but really not much else, right? I don't know enough about Western Australia. Right. As soon as I heard, like, Western Australia greater operator, I was just thinking, this guy's probably pulled a semi out of a ditch on Outback Truckers, and beyond that, uh, I'm... Frozen caveman lawyer, you know. Well, I've always imagined Western Australia as like a really hot Alaska. It's just a, it's just a, <laughs> a, a largely uninhabitable place, and the only people that are there are much manlier than will ever be. Yeah, that's kind of my impression. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, let's. our next email. Oh. Okay, this email is a journey. This is from Jeremy. And Jeremy says, Hello, gentlemen. Congratulations on your upcoming 100th episode. Thank you for all the time you put into the podcast. I found you guys this spring and I've been binge listening at random while keeping current. This summer, my employer allowed me to smoke weed all day while painting the buildings at a backcountry Hello Ski Lodge. Most days consist of ripping bowls of dank BC bud and slinging paint while drifting into a moto trance listening to your episodes. Now because of all the dank weed I haven't retained, all of what I heard, but your banter makes for good vibes to make the days pass quickly. You guys have certainly made me laugh out loud many times while standing on top of a scaffold while trying to paint tall buildings. Since you mentioned a few pods ago you want some suggestions for best moments, I thought I'd share one of my favorite episodes. Uh, should we read this out? Or we no, let's get... just leave that as a surprise. For we'll leave that as 100. a surprise. Because yeah. he, he put in some good specific stuff. He's, that was a good, that was actually one of our better moments. 
but yeah. Uh, so his baby is from Braxton. Uh, I don't even know what that one's about. So we will rediscover this at a later date and move on. Okay, so let's go on to read the rest. He says a bit about myself. I'm 30. I've been riding for 18 years. My first bike was while I worked and lived in Bermuda. They have a crazy scooter slash bike culture because the speed limit on the whole island is 25 miles an hour and bikes are limited to 150 cc's. My first steed was a 1997 Derby GPR 50 race replica two-stroke, but it had the 100 cc kit. I learned many lessons, many the hard way, but the bike is super light and fun to wind out. I even bump started it for six months because buying beer was more important than a new starter. Have you looked up the Derby GPR one, two, five, since we got this email? No. Pause. while you look this up. So it's basically like a, like if an R six Raven had dwarfism, which one is it? I feel like that one. Yeah. does a pretty good job. Wait, what was the year again? I don't know the year that he had it. 97, he said. Oh, wow. This is a 2009 that we're looking at. Okay, hold on. Oh, wow. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Give me me a moment. Have you seen it from the front? Because, (laughs) no, no, no. Yeah, look at that with that blue one in the corner, the 99 there. That's the same thing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it's like it's got fake air scoops on it. It's got three spoke mag wheels front and back. And it's got Jixer bug-eyed headlights and it's got fake air scoops and it's a 50. So this bike sort of has a little bit of a miniature it's like if you made a pocket bike out of a Ducati 916, but not really. <laughs> it's the three wheel, the three spoked mags front and back are amazing. Uh, what else can we say about this? The fake air scoop. The fake air scoop is great. Those are the spindliest brake and clutch levers I've ever seen in my life i kind of love this bike i do too but it's i don't know (laughs) i don't know if i love this old one or the new one better because they're both ridiculous i like the old one better i I like this one pictures of the derby gpr 125 are going in the show notes hardcore you have to see this to believe it okay let's keep going he says, um, I moved back to Canada piss poor and mounted a 1984 Magna 500cc V30 for $1,500. It was the best I could do. It was, surprising reli- it, was, it was surprisingly reliable the two years I had it. I almost feel like it's a downgrade. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I want more, this or a Honda Winner. Oh, that's, that's a tough choice. Right? All right, continuing on. He says, uh, now because I'm in, now, 
because I'm in my early 20s, I've been writing for four years, and I'm making good money, you know what I got? A fucking 03 Jixer 1000. I certainly learned some valuable lessons with this decision. After a couple years, I then added an 05 Ducati 749 to my stable. Because I'm young, single, and making money, and it's a fucking Ducati. In fact, my only regret in owning that Ducati was my choice of full matching Power Ranger gear. I don't feel like that's a bad decision at all. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh, I kind of, I actually. I wish you had full gear with the Derby 50. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way to go. I want a 749. Yeah, yeah. Uh, after my squid years, I found myself in a serious relationship, moved again, and my toys magically disappeared. It's a priority for me to get back on two wheels ASAP. A couple years later, I was making good money again, and I got a deal on a brand new 2014 Aprilia Dorsoduro. It was a pretty fun bike to commute city traffic, pop curbs, pull dank nooners, and it's fucking Italian. After another career move, we canceled the cable TV, and I was watching all that YouTube shit. I then traded the Aprilia for a fucking new 2018 KTM 1090 Adventure R. I'm usually a practical function-over-form person. Oh, yeah, because the Dorsoduro. And the, the Ducati the 749. 749. The Jixxer dis- 1000. Yeah, <laughs> we see the pattern, bro. <laughs> Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) I think that this is a great fit in my life for a few years. I use it for my weekly 250-mile commute to the lodge I work at. It's 20 miles up gnarly two-track in the mountains among endless logging roads, minor trails, and scenic alpine trails. I've been doing all that YouTube shit up here and exploring miles er, and exploring after work. My KTM has taken me to some pretty incredible places. I've even done a few multi-day off-road adventures, camping and shit. Like Tom Cruise, I have the virtuoso personality and will soon be looking for my next addition to my garage. I'm thinking something older I can put a collector plate on for some cheap insurance. Maybe a 90 sport bike? I love your best worst bike in the world. It brings up some interesting motorcycle and conversation and opens my eyes to some possibilities i don't have many buddies to talk bikes with and you fill that hole in my life for the record i never ride high or even after a beer i take that shit seriously puff puff pass noco the dude the dude all right so hmm what would be a great 90s sort of collector-ish bike for someone who's gone through a bunch of weird stuff well, if you've got the off-road, if you've got, like, the highway and the off-road covered, and you used to have the GPR, I feel like you've got to kind of go two-stroke and a little bit silly. If you really want to go classic, is this another case of a Super 6? Possibly. I think he wants something a little less, a little easier to live with than that. He said, you know, possibly something 90s. I think he was thinking along the lines of, hey, what a, you know, do, do you think a, a ZX7 is cool enough these days? Do you, do you, I think he's going like S-Rad, sort of throwback for his age, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, now is like the best time ever to buy a sweet, clean SRAD. It's just finding someone to do carburetor work for you if you don't have the time or the effort to do it yourself. Because an SRAD doesn't need to sit very long at all before that all turns into a fucking nightmare. Is this a first-gen VMAX situation? He had the Magna. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have a cruiser. Cur- Ooh, oh, okay. Now we're talking first or second gen. I'd go second gen VMAX. I'd go like 2007 VMAX because they look so close to the old ones. They're so faithful to the originals, but they're just a little bit newer, a little bit better. They have a little bit less problems. It has all the things that made the original VMAX great and keeps all that look but it's not a super-duper pain in the ass to live with. And you can get them in really good condition. Right. Yeah, yeah that's good. Because it has and the VMAX throwback attitude to it, yeah. but it's easier to live with. Because he's out there doing long trips on the KTM and everything. He's painting houses and shit. Does he have like a, a garage and a lot of garage time? No. Well, the other thing is, it's there's also a question, you know, the the collector's plate deal is kind of a double-edged sword because if it's actually a proper collector's vehicle then it's a great boon because yeah you just take it out for like parades and on weekends and stuff and you don't get hassled if you're trying to do the collector's plate for insurance and it's actually a daily driver and you're just doing it to be cheap there's a game you have to play well, first of all, on collector's plates, you're often not allowed to do more than 500 or 1,000 miles a year. So that's a problem. Yeah, and you're not allowed to ride it to work and or ride or drive to work. And there's all sorts of rules in place. Most people probably get by just fine, but there's there's some gamesmanship. And if you're like me and you're just not interested in that at all, then that's a hassle and a little bit of a trap. Yeah. Now, if I, you're if you're Phil, yeah, from Cleveland Moto, then this is your purpose in life. Yeah, you have more ways around this than anyone else is willing to even conceive of. When if you're yeah if if you're Phil from if you're Phil and you get pulled over with historic plates, the officer that's pulled you over has no idea what they're up against. <laughs> Um, but if you're a regular asshole, especially if you're in the middle of like BC, it's going to be difficult to say, yeah, I'm on my way to the parade. They're going to be like, what the parade of moose? What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) So, um, yeah, I say go for something with a nineties feel, but that's not actually historic. And I think a second gen V max is perfect. Okay. And he doesn't have a cruiser. So why not? All right, next yeah. email. Okay, uh, now we're on to Cameron, and he says, Hey guys, thought I'd share a funny story with you, but first, I finally came across a best-worst bike pick that I disagree with. I happen to think the early 2000s, the early 2000s Multistrada 1000DS is swag-tastic. Then again, I'm the guy who wants both a Strom 1000 and a Ducati Monster. And this at least looks like it would check both boxes nicely. Assuming you could possibly do something to make it 
comfortable, which is admittedly a stretch. Anyway, had an awesome ride today, one I think Dr. Mike would be proud of. Tons of back... Never before have more foreboding words been spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Tons of back roads of varying levels of sketchiness, slowly increasing likelihood that you're trespassing. The works. Yeah, it's very Dr. Mike. (laughs) On my way back, I saw a cornfield with what appeared to be a tame loop resembling a trail going from one point on the road back to another. Not having learned my lesson from the one mile an hour drop I had in the sand a couple of weeks ago, I decided to push my street tires to their traction limits. All was fine until about 90% of the way through when I hit a mud pit that stopped me in my tracks. I had to sacrifice my boots to the kickstand gods, for which I was repaid with fire ant bites. And then the better part of an hour getting absolutely nowhere collecting and placing wood scraps in the hopes of building myself a road out. Finally, some bros on a four-wheeler came to my rescue, but not before my front fender breaks and just the bottom in my and just the bottom of my bike in general were absolutely caked in mud. Took it slow on the road home and spent another hour getting as much mud as I could out of the nooks and crannies, at which point I discovered disconnected hoses, tubings, running to my coolant and oil systems, or whatever you call them. I thought for sure I had broken them in the debacle, and that my bike was out of commission for the year, as money is a bit tight for repairs right now. Until I did some Googling and realized that overflow hoses are a thing, and they are actually supposed to be like that. Roller coaster of a day, just thought I'd share. I feel like that's a a panic attack that every new motorcycle owner has at some point. Um I don't know if anybody knows about overflow hoses until they own a motorcycle. Yeah, I think I'd be lying if I said that I'd never looked at an overflow hose and gone, oh shit. What does this go to? Yeah. Where did it come? Yeah, because you you spend a couple minutes going, well, where the... I must be able to just plug it back into something, but there's no hole coming out anywhere. Yeah. (sighs) And it takes you minutes to be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. Um, I mean, what's tougher is he's out there in the middle of nowhere, and if you you see the picture, again, we've got to figure out a place to start hosting some of these pictures. Wait a minute. I have all the knowledge to create a photo bucket for this. I'm an asshole. Okay. Um, You're literally paying to learn this, Peter. I know. In fact, I actually have like an API set up ready to go for this right now. I already have several that I'm not using. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, yes. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll set this picture and you can just kind of see. I don't know what that van in the the edge of the picture is, but I'm guessing that had something to do with the four wheelers that came by and that and it's the only other thing in view anywhere. This dude was just out in the middle of nowhere, fucked until these guys showed up. And what's even worse is he had a boot off and so he clearly had just one foot caked in mud. 
which I guess the email doesn't talk about him having to put this boot back on. Wait, hang on. We've got, we've got to be able to see here. I, I want to see his footprint, his bare footprints in the mud here. Oh, uh, oh yeah, I can see it. Yeah, yeah. I can. Ah, oh, yeah. It's satisfying. <laughs> I, there, there's such a, there are so many wonderful little details just baked into this photo. You know, I think we need to have a sort of I'm fucked contest where we have listeners write in with stories about just getting into situations in which they were absolutely fucked and then magically making it out. But I feel like the 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 standard on this was when Mike ran out of gas on the way back from Austin and I siphoned gas from one bike to the other with the with the Walmart camelback. <laughs> right? Just yeah. you're absolutely fucked and then you magically got out of it. Like that's Sort of, because everyone's got a story like that. I mean, we could have got out of that situation for $10. but And another hour and a half of writing, yeah. But I was just able to stop and go back and just solve it in 10 minutes. Yeah. And let's not forget, like, the distances we were doing that day. An hour and a half would have really hurt us. It wouldn't have been fun. No. <laughs> And I would have paid $10 to avoid that. That's true. In any case. All right. We got to move on. Yeah. But yeah, we should, we should actually that com that, uh, the competition is good. I think we could call it. So how was your day? Yeah. <laughs> We're just fucking awful ride reports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll workshop that. Uh, so we missed this at the top of the episode. Our oh, uh, correction. A correction. That's yeah. right. So from Big Ben Adopted, uh, that's his pseudonym. He says, uh, the Honda DeVille, or the Doville, as you insist on pronouncing it. Doville. Was sold in the USA under Honda NT700V until about 2010. Second, the Suzuki Bergman has three models, the 650, the 400, and the 200. I won't hold it against you guys. Love the show and have a great day. So this is more of an omission than a correction. So here's the deal. Yes, the Doville was sold here as the NT, but it was not the version that was originally sold the the Gen One version that was sold in the UK and Europe. We got the Gen Two here, but the original Gen One of oh, the six fifty, yeah, that's really the for the purest, and that's kind of what I always see in my mind. And I guess as far as the Bergman two hundred got me, I didn't know there was a Bergman two hundred, so I guess all I have to say is nerd. <laughs> uh, no. no no thank you uh we do appreciate any and all corrections and omissions keep us honest because we're not going to do it ourselves all right so all we right. also have another email from richard oh yes and he says uh his favorite moments on the podcast for episode 100 he says thank you for your continued fantastic work i love every ever why do I have to fuck this one up? I love every episode, but my particular favorite was Swiggy's drunken email reading attempts. 
I laughed so much I nearly pissed my leathers. And this is when I went back and started listening to some of the episodes because Peter does the edits. And I thought you edited these a little bit more than you did. Oh no! When you read the emails <laughs> drunk, it it all like the only you thing that hits the editing fo- the editing room floor is my feet when it comes to you reading emails. <laughs> <laughs> that, why do you think people love it so much? <laughs> yeah. So I have a thing where I cannot stand to listen to my own voice recording. It just. I don't know. It just gives me pins and needles and it makes my skin crawl and I can't deal with it. So I've avoided as much as I can. But goddamn, I have been so much more generous to you (laughs) on the editing room floor. Well, I I will say that when you're reading emails, I will adjust the timing of things for comedy effects. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, when you just flub just, a word and you know, oh, let's try it again. <laughs> yeah, that stays <laughs> in. It's gold. All right. <laughs> Asshole. Uh, okay. Um, and then we got one more from Wesley who says, hey, guys, just wanted to write and say I was one of those guys who bought a GS500E as a first bike. I didn't know anything about motorcycles, only that I wanted one and it was for sale. I bought it from a pothead in a casino parking lot. It came with a bent handlebar and a full-face helmet that stank of weed smoke. After my first ride with that helmet, I could no longer pass a urine test or apply to the police academy. It was that bad. I showed up on it, no license of course, to a party feeling all cool a guy asked me if I if it was a twin, chain, or shaft drive, and how many gears it had. I realized I knew none of these things and had no clue what I was doing. I left with my tail between my legs. It's been 20 years, and I now call myself an accomplished rider who has 10 more bikes and many thousands of miles behind him. But I'll also, er, but I'll always be grateful to that little bike because I was able to pass my license test on it. Everyone's got to start somewhere. Thanks for the great show, Wesley. So, yeah, we were hard on the GS500E, but... Justifiably. Yeah. It it is one of those bikes, like the Nighthawk 250, that's sort of doing the Lord's work. Yeah. It's... But, yeah, you bought it the right way from a weirdo in a casino (laughs) parking lot. It's, you have to admit it'd be a curious purchase brand new, especially now that you're a seasoned writer. Like, would you really, really make that, that decision today? New, even if it was a, you know, 2019 version of a really unfinished looking naked bike with no features and low power and, I no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. But in the context that you had it, of course, everyone starts somewhere. And yeah, in a way, thank God for used GS five hundreds, absolutely. But new ones, no. Nah. Curious decision, yeah. 
Yeah, and and this comes back to the idea of what's cool. Because as a new bike and to a person of means, objectively, ridiculous bike makes no sense. But, you know, when you look at what cool is, is an aspirational thing and keeping the things around you that are positive and enable you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do, then a comparatively shitty bike that reaches a price point that's available, that's accessible, that allows you to ride when you otherwise wouldn't be able to ride, that's cool. So, yeah, overall, the concept of the bike sucks, but there's lots of shitty bikes that a lot of people had as their first bike, and it's still a cool bike to that person. There's very few people who will actually say that their first bike, even if they objectively know that it wasn't cool, it was cool to them. Yeah, my 650 Nighthawk was the greatest thing in the world to me. Not a cool bike. And you know, I thought my first car was the tits as well. But turns out the Chevy Beretta, even if it is the V6 sports version, not a cool car. <laughs> right? You know, I think actually all the Berettas were V6s. There might have been a there might have been a bigger displacement V4, but yeah. Yeah, even if it's even if it's you know the the five speed or whatever the the Chevy Beretta not a not a but you know what not also, one that we really look back fondly on these days. Also, just you know acknowledging your blunder years is kind of cool. Yeah, your blunder years. Okay, and I think it brings us to the end of emails. Is that right? That is the end of emails. Cool. Let's put in a little break here and then come back with. Uh, not a whole wrap up of the GP season, but some some thoughts on the on the close of the GP season at least, and uh, maybe some other news if we can fit it in there. All right, let's take a little break. So the MotoGP season is finished, which I don't know maybe will be a relief. For some of our listeners, they'll be like, thank God they're going to stop fucking talking about it. But, you know, I think most of our listeners appreciate this. So we're going to mention a few realities here. First of all, uh, we have to talk about in terms of the Valencia race. For people who don't know, Valencia is, it's like the Indy 500 for motorcycle racing in a way. Like the Indy 500 is part of the Indy racing series, but is such a that big of a race. It's it's winning winning it is its own thing in and of itself. Yeah. You can you can just crash out and do dog shit in every other Indy race during the year. But if you win the 500, that's that's the next best thing to just winning the overall championship. Right. If you don't win the championship, you at least want to win Valencia. That's kind of how it works. So Valencia is one of the most watched and most popular races on the calendar for this reason. It's a great track. It's it's interesting. It's and and, and no one has anything to lose. 
So everyone puts it all out there for Valencia. So it's Most always a great time rate. nobody has anything to lose. Well, okay. Sometimes a really weird position will happen between two of the riders, but that's often even canceled out by the fact that everybody else is a wild card. Yeah, sort of. And that's what that's one of the things that makes Valencia so great. So Valencia happened. And weirdly, it wasn't that amazing of a race. Marquez won. Quadraro had a really solid second, which was nice. Kind of the big story was Jack Miller had a really solid third place. Yeah. Well, I think the other incident of note is Zarco's brutal post-crash accident. Holy shit. If you haven't seen it. I'm not even going to spoil it. Just Google it and be fucking amazed that not only did he live like 20 minutes later, he was fine. He was standing up and walking around. He's superhuman. Yeah. If I was, uh, uh, if I was a health insurance company, I'd be like, I'm giving you super, super low rates because you're just some sort of indestructible cyborg. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not worried about you. Uh, I think in terms of an impact, cause you know, as dramatic as most, uh, motorcycle racing crashes look, most of them aren't that bad. I mean, they're bad in that they're rough and they're brutal, but generally they're a lot safer than they look because of the fact that you're not running into anything. You're skidding off the ground in leathers that are absorbing all of the friction and you just kind of slide out. You don't really hit anything and there's no big G forces in a crash for the most part. It's rare that there's a sudden stop because it's the sudden stop that gets you. Right. But this was, this was particularly brutal. Oh, there was an impact in this one. Oh my God. But yeah, we're not going to spoil it. You need to go look this up and just see it firsthand and just witness and experience the same shock that we had seeing this. Oh, yeah. And well, not only that, okay. I will say that this is up there in terms of sort of YouTube worthiness. This is up there with the 2017 or 2018, um, Jakob corn file. Oh, moto three ramping off ramping save. And this is also up there with, um, what was the other one? Uh, oh, this is up there with last year um, in terms of just pure shock value. Uh, of Nakagami surfing on the bike. Nakagami surfing on the bike was really good, but no. Th- no, I was going to say, um, what's his name? Pulling the brake lever. Um, oh, uh, guy I love to hate. Uh, yeah. I can't think. I've had beers now. I Jesus. love him. Uh, I, I hate him, but I love him. Fanati. Fanati, right. The, yeah. It, it's it take all the emotion, like all the crazy. It's not the same emotion, but that level of that. That's how good this is. Take, as a video. take the crazy, convert it into shock. Yeah. All right. So 
Anyway, Valencia was a very emotional race going into it, we knew, because before the race, Jorge Lorenzo announced he's retired. Wow. So uh, what did the numbers end up being? 68 wins? Like 109 podiums? Five championships? Uh, 105 podiums. Uh, 68 wins, 69 poles. 69 poles. Cra- <sighs> to put this in perspective, you have to add Kevin Schwantz to Wayne Rainey to get a Jorge Lorenzo. Yeah. And as much as you'll hear, as much as you've heard us rag on Jorge Lorenzo and equally praise him, and as much as you've heard the same from like Brodo GP and from commentators and from journalists and from other writers, not that we're writers, but you know we're what I mean. We're not racers, yeah. But you know what I mean. But from as much as Jorge Lorenzo has been mocked over the years and, and praised in He's small amounts. He's been difficult to like. He has been difficult to like, but he's always been respected. Oh, his talent's always been undeniable. In a way, he was sort of Marquez-like for a couple years in that he was too good. He was so good and he was so dominant for a few years there. We were. There's only been three writers it's been said anyone but this guy. People have said anyone but Rossi. Then they've said anyone but Lorenzo, and now they say anyone but Marquez for the wins. Because for a while, if Lorenzo got the whole shot, he was winning the race. And there was nothing you could do about it. Yeah. And people hated him because they thought he was making races boring because he was that good. Yeah, because it was, if he gets away on the first turn, that's the race. It's just... We're Mark just Marquez just won the season with the most points by breaking Jorge Lorenzo's record for winning a season with the most points. We're we're talking about a guy that has five championships, one of them in the two-stroke era, the rest in the four-stroke era, so across multiple classes and against the two greatest riders ever in the sport. And he beat them both at the top of their game. No matter what way you cut it, if you want to go just modern era or all time, Jorge Lorenzo has to be in at least your top four. And he's and if you're really honest with yourself, he's probably in your top three of greatest writers of all time. And how crazy is it that for the last few years, we've had the three greatest riders of all time racing at the same time. Yeah, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. If you go back and you look at the history, I, and I know a lot of people are going to say, no, Casey Stoner. and But, you know, Casey Stoner was great. And I'd probably put Casey Stoner in top five, top six. But I, I put Lorenzo above Casey Stoner. I just do. I know Casey Stoner is very likable and he did great things for Ducati and, you know, but, you know, a couple things really went his way 
and made things better for his. I I don't I think I don't think Casey Cerner would have done what he did if Marquez was around. I just don't. Uh, you know. Yeah. So there we go. We we're saying goodbye to Lorenzo, and it it's weird the the respect he's getting here at the end because he was sort of marginalized, like you said. But I think in these last interviews that he's been doing, he's been able to sort of not have to play the social media game. We were talking about this. This is a guy that started racing before social media and before that was a very important part of all of this. So I think some damage was done to his persona early on. Well, it's, you know, I think we have to make a distinction here because, you know, Rossi has only benefited from it, but... But he was born to be a part of yeah. that. Ro- Rossi is a total extrovert, whereas Lorenzo is possibly the most extreme introvert, bordering on being on the spectrum. Yeah, I think he's just kind of a real, genuine, awkward dude. And it's really only just been, he, he just felt like, oh... I don't have to be responsible to sponsors anymore and all of this. I can just be myself for a week of interviews. And it's a totally different person. I mean, a totally yeah. different person in these and interviews. And now, now he's totally different because he's free. Yeah. But he sees the end of the tunnel in, I mean, especially when you, when you put it in perspective in terms of thinking about, you know, how many different, Instagram photos does he have of him just wearing different scarves and jackets? Yeah, because obviously someone was like, oh, you don't have a personality for this. Let's dress you up in a bunch of scarves and jackets. Yeah, like 30% of his job has been Ken doll, basically. And he wasn't allowed to be himself. Yeah. I think that was his likability problem. I wish he'd just been a little bit more of himself. And I'll bet if I'll bet I'll bet we'll see in some interview in the next couple of years, he'll say something like that His his regret was he couldn't have done more of it, you know, quote his way or something like that. That'll mm. I bet you will hear something like that because. It, yeah, it, it makes me feel like I've misjudged him a lot through his career, but yeah, it, it almost seems like he's he's not happy to stop racing, but there's definitely been this massive pressure taken off him and that's been very clear in the interviews and him at the end of the at the end of the race and through all of that i still believe in his talent i think if he was going to race through next year at some point during next season with repsol he would put it together and start putting together amazing results just th- like he did at Ducati. But there's still no upside. Because what's he going to do? Steal wins from Marquez? Well, that's putting yourself in the toughest spot on the grid. And then after that, well, how long is he going to be expected to keep it up? He was towards the end of his career already anyway. And it's not like he had any more money he needed to make or anything to prove. And that crash he had halfway through this season obviously shook him up a lot. So even if he started winning on the Repsol, there still wouldn't have been any upside for him. So I completely understand his decision to go, you know what? Five championships. 
Last year, I turned it around on the Ducati in a way no one ever thought I could. Yeah, one bad season here with Repsol, but it was because of injury. You know what? I can just walk away now, and I have no regrets. Everything's like completely explained. There's no fall from grace. I'm, I retire. Legacy intact. I'm good. Absolutely. Go out like that. He's got his yeah. health. He doesn't like walk with a crutch or anything stupid. Like, Go for it. And well, there's also been so many stories about how, and I think he's been totally vindicated on that. When you think about all the stories that have come out about people like, was it Miller or it was, was it Miller who called him a wanker or was talking shit about him during like one of the safety meetings? Oh yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I can't remember the exact thing. I, I think it was probably Miller. It, no, Miller definitely had a comment about him because everyone else, everyone else wanted to race, and Lorenzo brought up a, a a big concern about safety, and he called him a pussy or something like that. Yeah, it was something like that. But you know, and everyone's kind of gone after Lorenzo because, to be fair, in the ridiculous world of motorcycle racing and personality, and you know, cult, you know, cult of personality. He's kind of an easy target in that regard. Yeah. Everyone's been, we have as well, for especially all the excuses he's made for particular performances and the way he rides and all of his mannerisms. But now that he's bowing out, as everyone reflects and sees that he's going now, now everyone realizes how much they're going to miss him. Yeah. And that's his vindication. Well, you know, also, he was kind of confident confident enough and tough enough to play the bad guy for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Max Biaggi played a really good bad guy, and we didn't really have one for a while. And, and he played a really good bad guy when he was younger. You know, Broda GP has talked about how they wanted him to really be a villain the last couple, three years. But his like first three years at Yamaha, he used to just outright copy things from from Rossi, beat him in races, and then taunt him about it. It was he was a really hardcore bad guy, but he was kind of the bad guy we needed him to be. Like, he was kind of tough enough and secure enough in who he was, or at least just distant enough that he could absorb that. And when you think about a sport with huge egos like that. But Mark Marquez cannot acknowledge and is not able to acknowledge his any part of his status that is anything but pure hero. Mark Marquez <laughs> is not does not have it within himself to play off of the aspects about him that people don't like so much. He can't have fun with his persona. He's not capable of that. I don't know if that's entirely true. Well, it's not. No, are you saying Lorenzo has had fun with his persona? No. What no. I'm saying is, is that <laughs> no, Lorenzo. Or worse, not that it was always both cut in, from the same cloth. Not that it was in always. That they're both kind of on the spectrum. <laughs> I'm saying that not that it was always intentional, but maybe because Lorenzo was so distant, we we do owe him some credit in him playing the bad guy for a while. That really did a lot for the series. No, Lorenzo played the bad guy in the same way 
that Oliver gave me shit as a child for putting too much milk in my cereal. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Anyway. For context, Oliver is our little brother. Yeah. Clearly, we're not going to meet in the middle on this point, and that's okay. But... But there's a, there's there's a lot more to be said about Lorenzo, and we'll keep hearing it as time goes on. And people have great insights about it because he's an he's an amazing racer. And I wish I could think of um, some great races off the top of my head, but I've been drinking too many beers. I'm sure 20 minutes from now, when we turn the mics off, I'll remember loads of amazing uh, Lorenzo races and moments. Catalonia, 2007. Okay. Rossi, uh, let me double check this. I can never remember. Is it 2007 to 2006? And basically the whole 2014 season, he was on fire. Was it the 15 seasons? 14 or 15? I want to say it was 15, actually. Oh, sorry. 2009. And. Oh, yeah. uh, The best. If you're one, if you well, want the to, whole second half of 2018 was great with him on the Ducati. Yeah. Well, also uh, 2015 as well. Yeah, I just said that whole Where season he, he was on fire. And probably the most famous clip will be Catalonia 2009 uh, with his. Oh, actually, was that? Oh, no, sorry. No. That's not a good one. Well, that's where Rossi won, actually. Never mind. That's why that's so popular. We'll cut that. <laughs> okay. I anyway, hope. Let's move on <laughs> to uh let's move on to some other things here. Uh let's talk about Quadraro a year in review. Yes. Uh I'm still impressed. I, I think he's still got a couple more things to live up to from everyone's high hopes, because everyone's hopes for him after the first three races were that high, but Uh, I'm going to say right now from what we know of the bike and the fact that it's a satellite Yamaha, I'm going to say he's delivered. He's delivered on everything I needed him to deliver on. I think a lot of people really elevated their expectations with him. And I think a lot of people would have expected a win by now, which is just insane. You don't expect wins out of someone their rookie season. It's unreasonable. But he came really close. Well, he's also, he's come really close, but also he's come really close when you have to keep in mind that aside from Coda, Marquez came first or second in every single race this season. Yeah. Which is shockingly dominant. And nobody else really came close. And still had a majority of wins, which is insane. And you also keep in mind that the Yamaha, in the last couple years, is even less horsepower than the Suzuki. It is now the the slowest of the major factories. It is slowest of the top four factory bikes in MotoGP. It's ridiculous. So you take that plus the fact that he's on a satellite bike and it's a year old. 
and they don't have direct factory support, and he gets six poles, and is it five podiums? Something like that, yeah. It's impressive. Oh, it's very impressive. He is the biggest rookie breakout star we've had in since Marquez. Yeah. Now, his numbers are nowhere near as good because, well, he didn't win the season in his first year, but he also doesn't have a factory ride. Yeah. There, there's all sorts of different calculations. And can you possibly say that if he had the Repsol Honda, he would have done that? No. But we can't. We also can't know. Right. I don't think he is as good as Marquez's rookie season, but he's the next best thing. It's true, but, you know, Vinales was supposed to be this. And Vinales looked really good on that Suzuki. And then he pulled out a win, which everyone thought was impossible. And then he went on to win his first three races on the Yamaha. And everyone went, see, we're all such geniuses. Well, first two, he crashed out of at Coda. Coda's the, no, it's Qatar, Argentina. Qatar, Argentina, Coda. Well, he crashed out of Coda, but then he won the race after. He won three out of the first four, I think. And then imploded. And then he imploded, right. So the whole point there is we have been teased so hard on another breakout star. I'm saying, you know, let's come back to Earth a little bit. Quattararo might be Marquez good, but there's a good chance that he's having a really good season and he'll be very good. And he might be better than everybody else except Marquez. Well, we've kind of had a bit of a roller coaster journey with Quattararo because first of all, the age limit for Moto three was lowered if you had won the CEV 125 championship. Yes. Which is colloquially known as the Quattararo rule. Right. So he got into Moto3 based on a technicality and a change of the rules specifically to favor him. And then he didn't actually do all that well in Moto3. Well, I mean, he did okay, but he didn't do well given the favoritism he was afforded. He then was unjustifiably promoted to Moto2, where he also did not do all that well. He then had a few good races, which were extremely impressive, and then he got promoted to Moto GP based off of that. And a lot of people, including me, thought, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Well, this this was the Alex Rins story as well. That's true. Well, no, Rins did well in Moto2, and fairly consistently. Nah, I remember Rins being pretty hot and cold. Don't you remember Rins's manager or team team manager in Moto Two yelling and threatening to fire him because he said that Rins was more interested in sunglasses than he was riding the motorcycle? Yeah, <laughs> it was very hot and cold. That's true. Well, yeah, but 
the the point is is that we're looking a year in review and we're looking at the stats. Yeah, but the and, point is, and what that what do he, the numbers show us? The numbers show us something that's potentially as good or better than Vinales. If we stack up Vinales on that Suzuki, and then Quadraro this year on a satellite Yamaha, I think we're looking at pretty equal things. Yes, and I would say we're looking at pretty uh, pretty equal circumstances, and then pretty equal. Um, outcomes, right? Maybe uh, Vinales didn't have as many podiums, but he had that win, right? It kind of balances out. And then next year, Quattararo is getting a current year M1. It's not the factory M1, but he's getting a 2020 M1, and it's Patronus. He's essentially riding a factory bike. I'm assuming it's, it's going to be a Cal Crutchlow situation where he's going to be he's going to start the season with the same bike. He may not get all the upgrades, but it's going to be way better than just riding last year's bike with no updates and having to make your own way. Right. So it's not that far off of what we would have expected from Vinales in that second year. It's the closest comparison I can make. So yeah. yes, there's still there's still something to be seen because we started the year off going, hey, maybe something will come out of this kid, and about halfway through the season, we started getting this growing, you know, grassroots grassroots movement of this is you know the the second coming of Valentino Rossi. Settled. That's what I'm saying. Settle down. Manage your expectations. But there is reason and there is data to support the idea that he could become a great star. But again, what are the odds that he'll be better than everybody? And what are the odds that he'll be better than everybody except for Marquez? Like, Think about that. He's already kind of suggesting he's better than everybody but Marquez. But he hasn't proved he has still hasn't beaten Marquez. So I think that's about where he's gonna slot in. Right. I think what he's going to be I think he's almost on he's almost on a fast track to be the next Dovey. I was just about to say that. Yeah. Okay. So that's Quadraro, a year in review. Uh, we have to talk about the Marquez brothers being on the same fucking team next year. Yes. Oh my god, I am so excited for this. For so many reasons that a lot of people are going to be super pissed. Yeah, we haven't heard a Brodo GP episode drop since this news was announced. I am waiting with bated breath. Kevin must be in a room collecting his own urine, like drawing in feces on the wall, talking to a sock puppet. (laughs) (laughs) So what's what's happened here? So I predicted on this show that if Alex Marquez won the Moto2 championship, I didn't say it was likely, but I said it's a 50-50 chance that Repsol Honda would buy out the Mark VDS contract and move him to the same team with his brother. Well, here's the thing. We all assumed this and this was, yeah, this was just assumed for a long time that 
for the last three years, Repsol Honda was just waiting to pull the trigger and make this marketing magic happen. And it never happened because Alex Marquez never won, and he had a couple seasons totally collapse, and we're like, what's going on here? And then we thought, well, is it going to happen this year? We kind of think it is, until every every party involved explicitly told us that it was not going to happen. Yeah. Well, also, and then it happened. If it had happened any time during the last four years, we wouldn't have liked it because we wouldn't have felt that Alex Marquez earned it. And this year, there's a very satisfying feeling that if he didn't earn the Repsol ride, he at least earned a GP ride, right? Yeah. So we're kind of okay with it. But also, it's interesting because they both won the championship. Now, we've got brother pitted against brother. And so there's going to be some real stakes there, one way or the other. Yeah. Well, as both you and I know, and Oliver and Richard know... There's only so much respect you can give your own brother. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you think that Alex Marquez is going to have any sort of deference to his to to Mark, a little bit, there's going to be a little bit of respect, but infinitely short. What's going to be even more interesting is that one of them is going to have a little bit more respect than the other noticeably. Like the first time Alex kind of sticks a knee into the side of Mar- of Mark's bike, it's going to be like, what the, f- okay, it's on. But there's no way this can turn out badly because let's say, okay, so we've got another rookie in Alex Marquez going in and he's going to duke it up and be really competitive with Morbidelli and Quadraro and all these other guys he's raced before. Right. So even if he's not a competitor for Mark, he is part of the next generation. Alex Marquez is the rider that's come in and and created enough of a new generation of riders. Vinales is officially old now. Right. He's he is middle aged in the current at least. Yes. In yeah. In. Similar to dog years, in MotoGP years, Vinales is now middle-aged. But just two, three years ago, we would have called him fresh on the scene. Yes. And now he's noticeably part of the old pack, right? So Alex Marquez is going to show up at the very least. He's going to wrestle things up with Mir, with... Morbidelli with Quattararo and all of that. And we're going to get a show there. That's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is he and Marquez start splitting wins, which I thought, well, no, they can't have that because Honda will hate that. No, Honda will love that. Honda really like doesn't even give a shit about winning anymore. They need a story. Like, winning is just old news to Honda. Honda needs something better than winning. And what's better than winning? Marquez versus Marquez. Because when it's Marquez versus Marquez, they don't just win every time. 
There's look, no way they can lose. Every time there's a guaranteed on, story okay, every look, single time for them. All you need to look for is that at every single Honda Power Sports event, take note that all of the Honda employees, especially the product people, are all wearing white pants because they are just endlessly jizzing their pants <laughs> at having the Marquez Marquez duo lineup first sibling team in motor motorcycle road racing. So I, I need to bring something up now that I've been sitting on for a few years it's never there's never really been a great time to bring it up but i have thought for a while that mark has has given up an opportunity for one of the coolest nicknames of all time cuz he's mark marquez m and m right he could have been the candy man <laughs> right but now we've got Marquez and Marquez. So if they find some, but it's weird because I was going to say like, oh, maybe they could be like the candy men or the candy brothers or the something. I've but got the it. problem is. No, okay. I've got it. What was it? M&M's and root beer. I don't get the root beer. What? A&M. M&M and A&M. A&M. Yeah. A&M root beer. Is it A&M root beer? Yes. You're killing my. It's A and W root beer. No, uh, oh, I'm thinking of Texas A and M. Okay, we're gonna cut all of that. <laughs> um, what? Well, <laughs> you just looked at me like I was an idiot. <laughs> I was like, "Am I an idiot? I don't know. I don't. That doesn't uh, sound right to me." M and M would have been pretty good. So, getting back to what I was about to say. Okay. So. So they're they're Marquez and Marquez, but they can't be the candy men. So I'm just teased now going, oh, there's some sort of awesome thing here for like a nickname or whatever. But they also can't be a nickname because now they're on the same team. They're bitter rivals. So we need some sort of rivalry nickname, but candy doesn't work into that. So I got excited when they were on the same team. So I was like, oh, we can make a name out of this. And then I'm like, no. We can't. It's just a. It's just. Is it's just a lost be, opportunity. Is this going to be sort of like a milit, like a navy situation, where, you know, they've got to be on the same side and they got to work together. They're on the same team, and there can't be any bad blood because they've got to work together and do the development together. But at the end of every season, they just have to have a boxing match. Oh right. Yeah, like the Army versus Navy boxing. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. They they should they there should be some sort of off season. Can we get season. that on the video pass? There should be some sort of off season for no points like Motocross. I don't know about Motocross, but I would go in for an all-star like all seasons, like bring in retired guys like MotoGP pocket bike race or just straight go-karts 
Go-karts would be good too, but I feel like, nah, let's do the motorcycle version of go-karts. Let's do, let's do 50 CC two stroke little. Oh, wait, (laughs) wait, no, they have to be Derby GPR one, two fives. There's really no other choice. That which oh I I during the break I thought of it. If you want to know what the Derby GPR one two five looks like, if you made Russian dolls out of the Ducati nine one six, this is like doll number five or six of a ten doll set. Enough, it's still recognizable, but enough details are starting to disappear that it's getting a little weird looking. Okay. Uh, let's move on to our next thing. Um, does anyone have any idea what's going to happen to Zarco next year? I don't know. I, you know. Everyone says he did great things for the last few rounds on the LCR Honda, but he doesn't have an LCR Honda seat. He's looking at what Mark uh, Alex Marquez's old seat in Moto2. He's looking at all kinds of things. No one's ever jumped back to Moto2 and then made it back to GP. Not only that, but I... The other thing to acknowledge is that Zarco didn't get into MotoGP until he was 24, which is old to get promoted. Right. And now he's, what, 26, 27, and he's going to go back? This is a Thomas he's got, Luthi situation. He's gotten a raw deal because he's Actually, clearly no. a Luthi GP was talent. Luthi was the only person who got promoted older than Zarco. Yeah. In recent memory. And that was a disaster. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. There, there... I cannot think of a rebound situation that come that bounds back into stardom. And this feels like a tipping point. But he's so clearly a GP talent, not a Moto2 talent, not a World Superbike talent. Yeah, this feels like a waste. It really does, because you look at what he did his first season when the Yamaha was at its worst, and he was on the satellite Yamaha at its worst. And this, this, well, this is where it gets really tricky, though. Because of all of the factory teams and the prominent satellite teams, who would you swap out? Who would you give a seat to? And realistically, at the bottom of those spots, your options are Miller. And Petrucci. I was going to say Petrucci. I think Miller has more promise. I don't think... I mean, Petrucci had that win, but is that enough? Because it was only that win. It was like nothing else. It's Ducati and he's Italian. I know. And that's the exercise. I know. Um, I mean, fuck. I, just to keep him in GP... You know, Aprilia can dump one of the Aspargros and just go, fuck, let's see what happens. It's better than Moto2. It keeps him in there, and it makes it easier to justify, hey, we're going to pull this guy 
get him at a bargain because he just wrote a year for Aprilia. Mm-hmm. You know, he got a bum deal. He didn't get kicked out. He spent a year in purgatory in Aprilia. Now we're going to pull him to, you know, whatever half-decent team that can do something next year when things move around again a little bit. Okay, so I think this brings us to our closing element here. Which kind well, I guess we really should have addressed this earlier, but I think this rounds it out pretty well. Okay. Which is to close out the season and to recognize all that's happened, especially with Lorenzo retiring. This kind of brings us back to Rossi. And Rossi... If next season isn't his last, I'll be shocked. Right. But it also brings an interesting element in terms of... Is Rossi sandbagging potential talent? I mean, it's hard to say that with the Yamaha not performing well. But we can't really say that because the satellite Yamaha is performing well, which also questions what what um, Vinales is doing on the factory bike. But besides that, and Rossi taking up this prominent spot, and everyone having to recognize that he's he's about to be on his way out the door. Because at a certain point, he's still putting up okay results. He's still, he's still, you know, competing. It's not an embarrassment. So I've got my conspiracy theory whenever you're ready for it. Go for it. So I said, why does Honda want Marquez versus Marquez? Because they're bored of winning. They want something better than winning. Right? And that's what they're going to get with Marquez and Marquez. There's inherently going to be a story, this battle of brothers. One's always going to be up and one's always going to be down. They can be on the same side or they can be bitter adversaries. One can be the absolute superstar. One can be a mid-level star. It doesn't matter. Whatever happens, they win, right? I think Honda wants to take this and run with it. I think Honda doesn't need to even win the championship to win. Let's remember, Rossi had more wins with Honda than he ever had with Yamaha. Mm -hmm. And these last few years at Yamaha have not been great. There's been accusations of the bike being developed for somebody else and all sorts of things going on. And And him just outright talking shit about the bike. And Yamaha having to come out and have apologies about the bike because of his attitude towards the bike. It's not been good. It's been a strained relationship, a very quietly strained relationship, because he's Valentino Rossi. He's bigger than the sport, right? So, I mean, he's got so much juice that Yamaha can't really slap him on the wrist. but. Given the way that it's gone, I would not be shocked at all. And I I would say right now it's more likely than not that when Rossi retires, there will be a VR46 GP team. And I think Honda will tell LCR to go fuck themselves 
for a VR46 Honda satellite team with the hot new talent. So they got the Spanish talent on one side. They got the Italian talent on the other side. They've got cool, recognizable, high brand graphics and sponsors on both bikes. And no matter what, they've got the elder guy, Mark Marquez, unbelievable championships, all-time great, or maybe not, or tied for all-time great. And then they've got hot new talent, young and sexy on the other hand. They've got Mark uh, Alex Marquez in the middle, and there's no way on any given weekend they can't win. It's a pretty good model. I like it. So I have another theory Okay. that I think a lot of people won't like. But I think... Does that have to do with time travel? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. No, there's no Terminator theories going on here. Okay. Um, I think that Yamaha will start coming back to not championships, but coming back to winning ways within two years of Rossi retiring. I can see it in three, four at the most. Yeah. I think that, and this is hard to say, but I feel like. (sighs) It's not like Rossi is sandbagging better talent. He's cock blocking other talent. Yes, exactly. Well, he's cock blocking better, not better talent, but younger talent that will be developed. Yeah, we've talked about this before. He's doing more harm than good. Because he's also just prolonging and exaggerating the crush that people are going to feel. Because they're they're already pre-feeling the crush of him leaving. We could have just ripped this Band-Aid off already. Yes. Everyone could have emotionally already been over it. But instead, we're drawing it out. People are feeling the dread even more. And they're going to take it really hard at the end of next year. It could have already been done, and Quadraro could have already had a year of development on the factory bike, and Yamaha's looking more competitive against Repsol. But no. And I feel like everybody was ready for it this year. I feel like, I mean, we're still going to have the same progression. A lot of people don't feel they're going to be ready for it, but they're more ready for it than they realize. We were ready to have this all be done and sorted this year, but I feel like it's been dragged out more than it needed to be. Oh, yes. And, yeah, I, I think Rossi will announce sometime around Phillip Island. Okay, here we go. And let's be honest, Lucio and Rossi are still going to be at every MotoGP event for the next 40 to 50 years. Oh, absolutely. Like, not only that, but they're not going to have to be actually sitting in qualifying. Like, you're just going to be able to buy a paddock pass and just go talk to them endlessly for the next half century because 
they're not going anywhere. Oh, yeah. In another 10 years, yeah, like Rossi will be a legend that people remember, but it won't be, he won't have the same pizzazz on a day to day basis. He'll be approachable. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, like it's not that crazy to think you can go to a GP race and snag a picture with Mick Dewan. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, or even Agostini. Like, he's just around, just sort of not really doing a whole lot of anything except being him, right? Right. His, yeah. And to the right people, that's amazing. Especially it's, it adds value. He's a, They're both living legends, and of course. But now, I think Rossi will have a little bit more to do in that. He'll just be involved in that VR46. Yeah. He'll, he'll have more things going at once than Dewan or Agostini, but they'll be around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where was I going with this? I don't know. But just that Yamaha is stuck in place right now with, with Rossi. There's yeah, they, they really can't make any progress until they cut that tie. And that's a really hard one to cut. Well, Oh, the sponsors yeah. want Rossi, you know, the brand wants Rossi. That's true. Well, also, I think the thing I want to I wanted to bring up was actually kind of it's interesting with Lorenzo retiring. Yeah, does that give Rossi more courage? No, uh that's not the direction I was going. It was oh, okay. um So, you know, everyone loved to rag on Lorenzo. Yeah. Fans of Rossi love to rag on Lorenzo. Fans of Marquez love to rag on Lorenzo. Even Lorenzo fans were like, yeah, he's not likable. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but he's fast. And as much as everybody loved to make him the villain even as much as he didn't even want to be a villain, which made him more of a villain. As soon as he retired, everyone stopped and was like, oh, shit, he's leaving. And everyone kind of had to reevaluate and be like, yeah, he's... Lorenzo is leaving. Oh, shit. Yeah, this is a day. And this is a day, and everyone has to give their due respect. And... When you look at how much respect Lorenzo got for bowing out, for actually retiring, for how long he'd been there and what he had accomplished, you know, in the motorcycle, you know, especially in MotoGP, a rider retiring, especially a distinguished rider, and also keep in mind, this is somebody bowing out and like putting in their notice at a company. And also keep in mind that. Lorenzo is retiring at 32. Yeah. And everybody is like, oh, fuck, he's going. Oh, man, you had a great run. Thank you for your years of service. Like, we did race for 18 years. It's true. But, you know, you have to keep in mind that. <sighs> okay, hold on. I got to stop you. Okay, so here, here's what it is. If Rossi is smart, Rossi is going to announce at the beginning of the next season, like when testing is done, 
that he's retiring at the end of the season. Why wait till the last race? I bet you he could cut an extra check and guarantee his LCR, you know, satellite team and GP and all of that by going, how would you like me to announce that this will be my last season? So at every race we go to, we guarantee that we sell out because everyone wants to make sure they saw me race in the last season. I would say you should work in marketing. That's the way Rossi's got to do it. Rossi's the only writer that can really pull juice like that too, to say, this is my last season from the get go. And it doesn't matter his results. Everyone will make sure that every European race will be sold out and every Asian race will be sold out. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. Yeah. Phillip Island. I mean, maybe Coda not, but it'll be really close. Yeah. And what, it's, what do you it's mean impossible to no, sell. No. Yeah. Coda it's impossible to, out, to, to sell out Qatar because only like no, 27 yeah. people show up anyway. <laughs> but. Well, you can't sell the venue when it's $27 for a beer and there's a two-drink limit. Do just, you do you really think Coda would sell out for Rossi last season? I can oh, say yeah. it, has been, it has been growing substantially every year. I just don't know if there's that much Rossi love anymore. Like uh, I was talking to my 17-year-old employee that, that rides in as an avid MotoGP fan. Did I tell you about this? You have told me four times within the span of a week and a half. Yes. yes. This, well, I had no idea that she was a GP fan. Like, I was just talking about, we were talking about sports or something in football and how I didn't give a shit. And I was like, yeah, no one cares that I like racing. She's like, I'm with you there too, Pete. Like, Mark has this, that. I just like did this. This is like record scratch. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> just straight up like, wait, how do you know that name? What, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, yeah, I've got like the season pass. I went to, I went to Austin this year. I was like, what? What? <laughs> Hold on. Like, everybody stop. I'm like, cl- turn off the open sign. Like, <laughs> let's just let me examine what's going on. Um, but yeah, she doesn't give a shit about Rossi. Couldn't fucking care less. Oh, I mean, and she likes Marquez, but she also admits Marquez has huge likability problems. Yeah, I. Well, In fact, our middle ground is that we're both Alex Marquez fans. Uh, no, I I am the I am the biggest Marquez fan because no, I, okay. Well, now I have to clarify this. This is yeah. the biggest problem with the Marquez <laughs> Marquez Repsol team is I have to I have to clarify which Marquez I'm talking about. I am the biggest Mark Marquez fan because I embrace him in all of his ridiculous, awkward gloriousness. Every ridiculous, almost borderline sociopathic, you know, interview and press conference because he is such a ridiculous person who's clearly on the spectrum that he doesn't know how to interact with normal people. I love every second of it. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. You know, Alex Marquez, I think is going to be, if he can put together, if Alex Marquez can put together half as many wins 
as his brother, he'll be 10 times as big a star. Because Alex Marquez is likable, and it hasn't just been nonstop wins for him this season. Alex Marquez has been on the bubble and looked at failure hard in the face, and now he's been rising out of it. Yes. Well, also, Alex Marquez does not have much of a personality, but if you were to look at Alex Marquez and Mark Marquez in a post-race or post-qualifier interview side-by-side muted, and you were told to spot the sociopath, you would not pick Alex Marquez Oh yeah, more right. than 50% <laughs> of the time. Yeah, it's true. Because I think you, you said this a lot earlier. Um, uh, Mark Marquez has, it's, it's not even like it's, it's the, uh, what's the footballer's name? Uh, Brady Manning. No, the, oh, fuck. I don't talk a lot about a lot of football players. No. Michael Vick. I don't know. No, not, no, uh, not American football, European soccer. Uh, Bob, what's the. Oh, what? Give me a country. Spain. A Spanish footballer? Oh, shit. Current or historical? Both? Spanish footballer who looks like Mark Marquez. Uh, Holy shit. This is like episode 30. Oh, wow. When you were explaining and having to rationalize to me why Mark Marquez was a sociopath. Oh. Um. Not in so many words, but... Look. Okay, Peter. Google... Google is great because Google uses a lot of machine learning algorithms and it's used by a lot of stupid people. Okay. So you can put stupid questions into Google and get intelligent answers. I mean, I could probably make a lot of David Beckham, Mark Marquez comparisons. I could probably even make a lot of George Best. Mark Marquez comparisons. Ronaldo. Oh, really? I do not remember saying anything about Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo. Well, I know who he is now that you say that. Yeah. No, you made this. This was like. I'm sure I did. But I say a lot of crazy shit. Okay. I cannot be held accountable for all of it. This was a big moment a while. (laughs) I was like. Okay, now I see what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of similarities going on between the okay, two. Okay, I don't know how you're going to cut this together. Well, but we'll, we'll find it. Have to, you'll, I mean, have to, you'll have to work it out. I can't, I can't tell you what I said to connect the two. <laughs> I cannot begin to tell you. Are you just pleading the fifth here? Well, I mean, <laughs> when we find the tape, I'll own up to it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pull a Trump and be like, "That clearly wasn't me. It's out of context." But you know, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure I said something, but I can't tell you what it was. But 
All right. <laughs> we we do need to find a beat to wrap this whole thing up on, though. Well, I think there is an important point we need to make, which is I with Lorenzo bowing out, it kind of puts a bit of a clock on a lot of other riders. Not so much with Davizioso, just because he's quite a bit younger and he's got you know or, yeah, with Lorenzo, you know, with Davizioso, he's got a little bit of a success train. He's got a brand going, he's gonna keep it going. But with Lorenzo going out and bowing out as somebody of note. It kind of puts the pressure back on Rossi. And with everyone thinking about how with Lorenzo going out and kind of reflecting and giving him his due respect, there's kind of there's a weird element that goes on with a rider, especially a rider of note, retiring out of MotoGP. Which is because everybody in MotoGP kind of lives in bullet time and you're kind of lucky to have a six or seven year career. And if you've got a 10 year career, you've had a good run. And for somebody like Rossi, who's had at this point, what, an 18, 19 year career? Oh, Rossi had more than that. I mean, he's coming up on 20. Or he said a 21 year? He'd been racing since he was 17 and now he's 42. Well, I mean, like GP. But yeah. Yeah, put it all together, you know, 22, 23 years. You know, everyone kind of has this moment when somebody who's been around a long time kind of bows out that they've recognized as a staple. And Lorenzo has been that to a lot of people. Which is, you know, because all of these rioters kind of live in bullet time and most of them are younger than we are, they think, oh shit, he's gone now. He's out. Everyone is going to have this moment with Rossi going out, which is this kind of ridiculous existential crisis, which is like, oh shit, he's out. You know what? I'm going to retire someday. You know what? Holy shit. We're all going to die someday. Like, there's this ridiculous existential crisis that kind of has to occur in the community as everyone recognizes that, yes, time moves on. And this whole institution is moving on. I'm gonna it's going to be a big moment. I'm going to double down that it's going to happen in this offseason. That he's going to announce that he's going to retire next year? or that At he's the gonna... end of the next year. At the end of the next year. Because there's too much money on the table not to. So you're not, you're not doubling down that he will retire at the end of the next year, but that he will announce before the beginning of the next season. Yeah. That he will announce that he will retire at the end of the season. If he doesn't, he's crazy. He's leaving so much money on the table. Because if he does that, it guarantees he goes out gloriously. If he does that, it's like he wins every race because he does that victory lap at the end of every race. 
So every fan across the world has a chance to go stand there and buy a ticket and cheer when he comes by with a flag and they'll celebrate him riding by as if he's won the championship because in that moment they'll be celebrating his entire career. He'll have a whole season of winning every single race, basically. There's no better way to go out. It's potentially stealing a lot of thunder. But marketing-wise, it's brilliant. It's good for his ego. It's good for his legacy. It's good for his brand. It's the best way to go out. It's not bad. And if he's trying to bank on him having another good season and winning, well, that would just be icing on the cake. But it doesn't have to be that either. If he's smart, that's what he'll do. Well, it's what I would do. It's it's a tough thing to do when you're used to being so competitive for so many years. But at this point, it's the logical play. Yeah. I kind of don't like it from the health of the sport, but from a personal brand, it's amazing. No, for the health of the sport, it's great because it, for the health of the sport, it's great because now that his retirement has been so built up and it's going to be, it's like we've been pulling that bandaid off slowly. We're at least, ex- we're at least going, okay, we've been pulling off this bandaid really slowly. Tell you what, here's a shot of Novocaine before we rip it off. Cause now everyone gets to go, okay, We've got a whole year to enjoy these races and emotionally come to this point where he retires. Yeah. Because normally when a racer retires, the end of the season comes and it's just, oh, he's not racing next year. Right? Lorenzo just announcing at the last race was kind of a a, a thing. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. Here we go. But it, it really, and if you look at any race's career, they race and they race and they race and they're going to win the next race. They're going to win the next race until one day they're just not racing anymore. That's just kind of how it happens. A crash true, happens yeah. and they go, oh, you know what? I'm not racing anymore. It's the end of the season. I didn't renew a, I didn't renew a contract. Uh, maybe I'll come back two years from now. No, it, it just... All of a sudden, they're racing until one day they're just not racing anymore. Rossi is in a unique position to do it differently. And since he has that power, he has that control, and he can pick his own destiny, he'll be foolish not to do this. It's interesting. Okay, yeah. Actually, yeah, I like that. That's the right way to do it. Yeah, everybody wins this way. He gets so he gets a season of glory, whether he wins races or not. So he gets to go out on top. Also, isn't this next year his last year under contract? Well, I don't think he's ever in his entire career. I don't think he's ever signed more than a two-year contract. Right, the last time he did was works. when he turned forty. 
Yeah, I think so. I think this is his last year under contract with Yamaha currently. Well, every other year is his last year under contract. But, so but we're in that yeah. cycle right now is what I'm saying. Yeah. So he's he'd be crazy not to announce it. There we go. Mm-hmm. I think that's the bombshell. I think it's where we end this. Yeah. Okay. So to round all this out, reminding everyone again, we might put some episodes behind a paywall. We're working on a potential patreon thing where maybe you can give us a dollar to call yourself a noco loco you can give us five bucks to either get your choice of old episodes or exclusive content or you can get 10 bucks to get both or 50 bucks to choose best worst bike or something we don't know what it is we're just throwing ideas around and we're it's probably not something we'll do for i would say I would say two months would be early for us to implement something like this if we even do it. But just kind of giving everyone a heads up that we're thinking about it. Um, I'm going to remind everyone to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. It's your cost of admission for listening to the show. And with that, we're going to say let's remind everyone to stay safe and stay tuned and keep fighting the dragon. You ready to do the outro? Let's do it. Okay. And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Cold.